Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We are at Apollo <laughs> HQ, and I'm pleased to say that joining us now is Mark Rowan, the CEO. Mark, good morning to you. Good morning, all. Great Thanks. to have. Thank you for coming. Great to be here, and great to have you with us. So Pleasure. let's just go straight to the top of this conversation: private markets versus public markets, and why you believe the big opportunity right now is in the former, and not the latter. Look, we've had a sea change, not just over a year, we've had it over 15 years. So much of our public markets are indexed and correlated. 80% of volume S&P 500, 60% of the market ETFs. 100% of our returns this year are from 10 stocks, which constitute 35% of the S&P, that traded an average PE of 50. How many of us come in every day looking to buy 50 PE stocks? Not many. And I guess what I'm suggesting to you is that if you, public markets, they're so correlated and indexed to interest rates and to money flows, that if you actually want alpha, outperformance, you need to step away from public markets. And I think that's happening because we're also revisiting the notion of public being safe and private being risky. This is the framework we used to be in. Private meant venture capital, hedge funds, private equity. Now it just means less liquid. Is that not inherently a risk in your mind, liquidity? Liquidity is a risk to everyone, but in differing degrees. So if you are a retirement plan or a retirement system, you know your liquidity requirements for the next 10 years. So if you can get paid for illiquidity, why not get paid for illiquidity? If you're a wealthy individual, how many of them need 100% of their money on Tuesday? If they don't, they should get paid for illiquidity. And we're seeing that in the performance data. If you look at the active management, active management has failed to beat the index 85% of the time for 20 years. And I think it's going to get harder, not easier, to beat the index. As more and more of the market is indexed, very little money is left to actually make up what needs to be done in active management. What is the single operational distinction between Drexel, Burnham, Lambert, and your Apollo? What is the, the micro idea you can give us of then versus now? I'll not just, uh, I'll give you Drexel, I'll give you Lehman Brothers, I'll give you Bear Stearns, I'll give you SVB, I'll give you First Republic. The financial institutions tend to die of one of two causes, heart attack or cancer. Heart attack is funding risk. They borrow short and they lend long. Cancer is the slow addition of poor quality assets, which uh, over time undermine the system. So you look at all of those mm -hmm. firms, all of those had an element of both heart attack and cancer, funding risk as well as asset risk. You look at what we're doing. We are borrow long, borrowed long and lent long. Everything is matched. Everything is in a fund. There is no daily liquid, quarterly liquid money at Apollo. We are ideally situated to take advantage of less liquid assets. We've structured ourselves that way. And then you look at the totality of what we do. Um, equity is a risk business. Equities go up and down every day. You can lose money in public equity. You can lose money in private equity. In the credit business, the vast, vast majority of what we do is private investment grade. Mm -hmm. When I look at the risks out there and to translate it into Nassim Taleb and all the work he did in Quant with Black Swan. What are the tail risks you see right now for private equity 
I mean, are you hedged perfectly? Is, is there next to no delta where you feel so comfortable? Or are there actual tail risks at Apollo? I don't think there are tail risks, and I don't think there are tail risks in private equity. I think private equity is a risk-taking activity. But each of the companies, each of the situations is idiosyncratic onto itself. Um, and over time, private equity has proven to be a very good asset class, recognizing that in certain markets you will lose money, just like in certain public markets you will lose money. Well, you had a test here with the way interest rates went. You had a four, five, six standard deviation shock. How did your risks perform given the shock of higher rates? The, the, the glide path of that, how was it along the way? Uh, single best year in Apollo's history. Earnings, asset performance, the, our platform, as you think about it, we are around $650 billion of assets under management in our asset management business. $500 billion of that is credit. We generally benefit from rising rates. Yes, on the equity side, some equity will be worth less than it was, but as a general rule for Apollo, credit rates going up is very strong. On the retirement services side of our business, which is the Athene business, just gone through the roof. Athene is up 30% year over year. So I'm going to steal a page from this guy because he's been talking about Ozempic a lot. And honestly, I think that it's important for us to talk about. Are you, are you telling me something that no, I need to No, absolutely not. And I'm I just so think <laughs> you're suggesting that I'm on Ozempic. Please no, continue. I'm not saying that anyone is on Ozempic. We're talking about this as a game changer I want to make that potentially. Clear. <laughs> no one here is on Ozempic and we're not making any, not that there's anything wrong with it. Whatever, let's move on. Here's this question about how much that transforms life expectancy, how much that transforms some of the investment thesis from your perspective and for retirement. Look, o o over time, you would expect improvements in healthcare, improvements in health technology to improve life expectancy, but not by all that much. We tend to find other things that are bad for the human body. As, as one thing does not uh, kill us, another thing does. So I, but I would expect the trend to continue. We are, just to be clear, we are not in the insurance business. We are, in, and we are an insurance company that is in the retirement services business. We make money by guaranteeing people's retirement, and we earn money by earning more on our assets than we pay out on our liabilities. Very little exposure to longevity or any other what you would consider biometric or typical insurance risk. There's a real question here and a real focus on income, and you've been talking about that, how there is risk in equity, but not necessarily the same type of thing uh, that you see in credit. And we just saw credit outperform private credit outperform private equity pretty meaningfully. Are you going to shift away from private equity more and more and just focus purely on the more credit business? No, this is the answer. But we have to step back and go back to what our business is. Our business at Apollo, and for most people in the alternative asset management industry, we're not in the asset management business. We're in the excess return per unit of risk business. And then I ask myself, where can we get excess return? Well, in equity, we've gotten to $150 billion. Is it going to grow? I think it will grow. Will it grow multiples? I don't think so. I think the nature of the business, if we're true to ourselves of just focusing on excess return, is slower growth. I look at the credit business. The credit business is nearly 500 billion today. We're not relevant. In the scheme and the scale of these markets, 500 billion is not a relevant sentiment. I assure you, when you speak to all the big bank CEOs today, they don't wake up every day wondering what the mighty Apollo is doing. There's a phrase I've used twice already this morning in the last 40 minutes, one hour, debanking. And every time I've used it, I've had pushback around this table. Why don't we like that phrase, debanking? I personally like that phrase. Uh, Jim Zelter will it'll cost me $20 for just saying the word debanking, but I'm happy to pay it. <laughs> uh, I think the world is debanking. And I say it this way. 
every economy, every regulatory scheme, credit is tied to GDP. And regulators have only two choices as to where credit comes from. It can come from the banking system or it can come from the investment marketplace. There's no third choice. And everyone around the globe has made a different decision. But if you look at the trend, with the exception of China, everywhere in the world, regulators are favoring investors over banks. That does not mean we're going to see a sun shift. That does not mean the banking business is going out of business. On the margin, though, the growth is going to take place in the investor marketplace rather than in the banking system for good and valid reasons and for regulatory choice, not because the banking system is unsafe. So given that, you said you don't see a lot of upside in terms of growth, tremendous amount of growth in the equity side. You said you're relevant with $500 billion. How big, how relevant could you become? Well, I, I sat next to a senior executive from BlackRock last night at dinner, and they had food in front of them, and I had no food. And I said, how, how big do you have to be to get food in front of you? And he said, $10 trillion. So that's what you're aiming for, $10 trillion? No, is that what you're I, saying? Look, for us, <laughs> for us, this is about excess return per unit of risk. Our business plan calls for a doubling of our business. And at the end of the doubling, liking who we are as a culture, our limiter is not capital raising. Our limiter is not size of AUM. Our limiter is making sure we get excess return per unit risk, so finding assets, and making sure we like our culture at the end of the day. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. At Apollo Global Management, we welcome all of you uh, right now, Lisa Bramowitz, John Farrell, and myself for a delicate conversation with Mark Rowan, Chief Executive Officer of Apollo. And we all bring to this our childhoods. My childhood was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant grandmother, John after her third scotch, who would talk about how Jews couldn't go to a certain school in Massachusetts. Most of them ended up at Lisa's University of Chicago. That was a different battle. Now there is a new battle, and we address this with Mark Rowan. I am stunned at what I see at these schools, and particularly at your University of Pennsylvania. You've been vocal. What is the dialogue you're having right now with the leadership of University of Pennsylvania as they deal with this new anti-Semitism? Um, there, there's no dialogue with leadership. 
At the moment, leadership is uh, on their way or in D.C. for a series of congressional hearings. But the underlying culture that permitted this to happen is just so strong. And until there is a moment of self-reflection where we're not dealing with just anti-Semitism, we're dealing with the culture that allowed this to happen, there really is going to be no progress. And to date, there's been no progress. So what is progress, right? Because there's a real question around free speech versus something else. What is the something else that you're looking for some of these universities to target? This is really not a question of free speech. This is a question of favored speech and disfavored speech and a, an institutional psychology and an institutional culture. So there are places where this is modeled and they're getting it right. For instance, University of Chicago. University of Chicago, Chicago is getting it right. They are kicking Penn's butt to be candid. And it's not that hard. The institution has decided that it is institutionally neutral and that the students and professors and other actors on campus are allowed to have opinions and to speak their opinions within respectful ways. Say what you will, say what you want, allow the other side to speak. That is a culture of free speech. A culture where you shout people down, where you have 95% of the professor or academia speaking in one way, where you permit violent protests, where students aren't able to go to class because there's boycotts or there's pressure or other things, is not a culture of free speech. How do you understand the increase in anti-Semitism on the left, which has really polarized, frankly, the Democratic Party and created a lot of uh, sort of soul searching? Look, th this is a long time coming, but I'll start with history. Um, the definition of anti-Semitism, the modern definition, the IRA definition, includes anti-Zionism as a form of anti-Semitism. This got through the Senate with many of the current senators still there, 99 to 0, including most of the most progressive uh, Democratic senators. So what we've seen is we've seen a shift in the mood of the populace, particularly on university campuses. We live in a culture on these university campuses of simplicity. You are oppressed or you are an oppressor. If you are oppressed, it does not matter what you do, you can do no wrong. If you are an oppressor, facts be damned, it does not matter what you do, you can do no right. In that kind of mindset, it does not surprise me that anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism has taken hold. And if you give historical context, go to the Holocaust. You have dehumanization, you have delegitimization, and then you ultimately have genocide. Now you apply that to anti-Zionism, you have dehumanizing of Israelis and Jews, you have delegitimizing of Israeli and Jews, and now with Hamas's attack, you have the beginnings of killings. It's not that hard to see where we are. What all the, the only thing that's hard is for the left to recognize it. I have been surprised that people have been so surprised by where some of these campuses are at. And I think about the amount of tremendous philanthropy that have come from people like yourself over the years on these campuses. I do wonder why we allowed it to come to this mark, why it got this far, when we've seen this been building for, for years and years and years through a whole generation. The answer, I believe, is a slow build. And it ultimately comes back to governance and leadership. If I speak just about University of Pennsylvania, the governance is actually divided between the faculty and the trustees. Except for the last 25 years, only one of those two groups has been doing their job. And I put myself in the camp that did not do their job. I was a trustee for a long period of time. The trustees have a very important role to play in setting the strategic direction of the university, permissible and impermissible. Where we want to go, except it's not a governing body. 47 trustees really can't agree on anything. It's not set up to govern. There's no history of govern. And so in the absence of any leadership, 
faculty or administration has taken these universities in direction that the alumni do not recognize. When you have a John Huntsman, a Ronald Lauder, a Cliff Asnes, and 7,000 other alumni who for their own reasons, their own political persuasions, their own belief system, all don't recognize the university that they loved, you have a problem. So first move is to stop donating, I guess. We could disengage, walk away. You seem to be more constructive about the prospect of change here. You think there is a better path ahead. I think the worst thing that can happen to these universities is apathy. Right now, there's not apathy. Donors are engaged. They want change. They love the place. This goes on much longer. I think we will get to apathy. And once we get to apathy, I don't think the universities can recover from this. And unfortunately, all university presidents that I'm aware of, particularly at the University of Pennsylvania, they seek to wait this out. Maybe this will go away. I won't have to deal right. with this. That is actually a loss. They haven't internalized that that's a loss, but that is a loss. There's an understanding there's a woke adjustment going on right now. We see it in Hollywood, the collapse of many Disney movies and others that have certain messages that aren't selling to the public. The FT has an article on uh, your colleagues at BlackRock on ESG and how there's a woke adjustment in ESG. How's this going to adjust the wokeness of these universities? How will it adjust? Look, this is a question ultimately of balance. This is not a question of a pendulum swing all the way back. But right now, these universities are out of balance. And I believe that the trustees, the alumni, and by the way, many of the faculty, if we read Bill Ackman's letter yesterday and the experience I'm having at the University of Pennsylvania is word for word the experience that Bill Ackman is having at Harvard. Professors don't want to be muzzled anymore. They feel that they can't speak out unless they are conforming to the narrative of the university. And the resentment is building. All we've done, all I've done, all Bill has done, is given people an opportunity to speak their minds. And guess what? They have a lot to say. Big election next year. Let's finish on that. Is this going to change how you approach US politics, who you would endorse for 2024? No, it's not going to change. Do you have a favorite candidate? No. It's hard to believe with 350 million people in this country that we're down to two. You disappointed with these two? Personally, I'm disappointed. What is it about these two that you find so disappointing? Look, we, we, are, we, are in the, we have the single best hand of cards anywhere in the world. We have it all. We just play this hand poorly. What does that mean? Think about it. People want to come here. We have an incredible knowledge base. We have abundant energy. We're leaders in technology. We have a massive domestic market. We're the strongest military power. And yet, we have challenges that we have not been able to, as a result of lack of leadership, as a result of political consensus, to address. We have a retirement crisis. We have a health care crisis. We have a budgetary crisis. We are inconsistent to our allies around the world. We have important decisions to make without weighing in mm -hmm. as to what's going on in Ukraine and what's going on in the Middle East, all of which seems to be caught in a little bit of a morass. Is United Nations experience important for a presidential candidate? United Nations, no. Okay, I was trying to get him to... That was delicate. This is delicate. <laughs> that was delicate. That was a sensitive side. I, I thought I responded delicate. <laughs> yeah, I think that was perfect. <laughs> Mark, thank you. Thank, thank you for having you. us. It's good to catch up. Total pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Mark Robin there, the CEO of Apollo. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.